Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. Tonight, I'll be joined by celebrated poet and author Jerry Lovelady. Jerry is a native Texan who lives in Beaumont, Texas, where he teaches English at a high school. He is married to his lovely wife, Christy, who is frequently the subject of his poems. Jerry has two books out, one released in 2021 titled Other Worlds, in other words, and the other in 2022 titled Grief and Her Three Sons. The independent publisher Atmosphere Press published both titles. Jerry places great importance on safeguarding of nature. Safeguarding of nature. He believes nature has much to teach us if we listen and open our eyes to what is going on around us. Everyone, I'd like you to help me welcome Jerry to the program. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Michael. Hi. Hello. (laughs) All right. Hi, Jerry. Jerry, let's begin this poetic journey. All right? Okay. All right. Jerry, what is poetry? Well, to me, uh, poetry is essentially uh, what I I can dig out of myself and and relate to the rest of the world. And I think that people have been doing this in so many different ways since the beginning of time. I think the older older, uh, examples of it... We probably didn't have flutes. All we had was maybe drum. We didn't have drums yet. We didn't have books yet. But we did have a spoken word. But people related stories. And I think uh, all poems relate some kind of story in one way or another. Whether it's an internal story or an external story about what we see, what we feel, what's inside us, what things symbolize, connectedness that everything has. I think all of those things... Uh, can be forms of poetry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, All right. Yeah, I think that's it. All right, I like the way you think. And I liked what you said initially, that something you can dig out of yourself. That that really struck me. Tell me more about digging out in terms of poetry. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And, and, uh, and I start writing something, I'll come up with a thought, something will come up out of me out of the blue just nothing mm-hmm. uh at my i'm sitting drinking coffee in the morning on the porch or something and uh and all of all of a sudden this flow of uh thought starts coming through i don't know where it's coming from inside me but it's somewhere in there is channeling it and and i end up it rolls out of my head onto that paper wow. and that's where it where it's from it, it comes from inside somewhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but External, whatever I'm looking at or thinking about is what prompts it. I guess there's a window that opens up and inside, and then that, that prompts that whatever's inside me to, to roll those words out. And I wow. think that's what it is. All right, very nice. 
So knowing what you know, Jerry, about the world and what you know about poetry, why is it important? Why is it important that we do what we do as poets? I really want to know. Tell me. I think it's a legacy, and it's only entrusted to some people. I don't think it's entrusted for everybody to do poetry. The um, the people that write music, I love them. Some of them are good songwriters. They actually can can write poetry, but their their focus is mainly on playing the music. Paints a good picture, but a poet can can uh, take words and paint a good or a better picture with those mm-hmm. words. In fact, we can take a, a page to a half a page and maybe a page and a half, and, and write the meaning of, of whole chapters of books. So uh, I think that's why it's important is to, is to maintain that, that legacy, wherever that creativity is coming from. I think it's still a legacy, and, and we owe it. We, uh, those of us that have the talent ought to use it. That's why. All right. You know, we've only been talking just a couple of seconds, but I already sense that you love what you do by being a poet. Is that true or false? Correct. Very true. Very, very much so. I'm, I'm in love with uh, writing poetry. Um, I'm never, Tell me I more. I like that. Go ahead. Tell me more. I want to hear about it. This love affair. I haven't been poetry. doing it long enough. I, I got turned on to it, uh, I guess, as a kid, I noticed that uh, we would have, like, third grade class. You read a lot of uh, old poetry, and you get up and you read poetry. I love to get up and read it. A lot of kids didn't like it, but I enjoyed reading Alfred Lord Tennyson, people like that. We'd get up and we'd the, the Charge of the Light Brigade or whatever it was we were reading. <laughs> and these, these, a boo Ben Adam, you know, and stuff like that. And I would love that stuff. You know, I would read it, and I, I would look around and think, why don't these other kids care about that? Well, I did, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what tells me there's something different about people that like poetry. And I continue to like it. And uh, well, actually, when I got... Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say you stole one of my questions because I usually <laughs> ask, please share with me early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. So if you'd like to elaborate on one of those experiences, the Charge of the Light Brigade, please do so. Sure, and and that and a Boo Ben Adam, I just something that that very little uh, uh, as a kid I remember so vividly mm-hmm. as the, these uh, these sonnets and and other uh, writings, these epics like that. But mm-hmm. but they stick in your head, and they're very powerful imagery when you, you talk about these groups of men rushing down toward their certain death, you know, just <laughs> literally a certain death. And then you think about uh, to uh, Abu Ben Adam in his tent at the middle of the night. That's about, uh, that's a, believe it or not, that's an Islamic sort of uh, story. It's not a Christian story. But it's interesting mm-hmm. that uh, it, it goes beyond the, the, the scope of Christianity that, that this – this author, who probably was a Christian, is writing about the Islamist uh, experience of Abu Ben Adam, who's who's uh, probably a better one, you know, living right. in the in the desert, you know. So things like that uh, have always uh, interests me, and that that being uh, the case, uh, when I got to read Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. I never knew the guy called Walt Whitman who could write the way he wrote. He just opened my eyes. He opened my eyes to 
what what this is poetry. And then I found out like he's a mystic poet. He's he's one that mm. people consider mystic poet. I started investigating the mystic poets, and uh, I haven't been disappointed by that. And I, right. I think that's more kind of where I'm moving. All my poetry seems to be moving in that. The mystics, I think, say that they believe that somehow or another information could come to them about spirituality outside of the church house. And and I believe that too. I think I've always thought that if you were out there in the wilderness and you didn't, have, you didn't know how to read or you didn't know how to write, you didn't mm-hmm. know anything about somehow or another that power, that power greater than myself would find me and be able to talk to me and communicate with me like it did to people like that. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. Well, as I did my research for our talk tonight, I looked into mystic poetry more than I probably have in the past. And one of the questions I asked, what are some of the characteristics that you just shared of a mystic poet or mystic poetry? And it stated that mystical poetry is about sharing moments, feelings, ideas in a way that weaves together the mysterious and the mundane parts of our lives and imaginations into a perfectly paradoxical whole. I was like, wow. Yeah. Together the the mystery and the mundane. That was beautiful to me. And a lot of my poems are like that. They talk about mundane little things. One of the rocks and the trees and the rivers, but in my poems, you know, we look at them, it's beautiful scenery. But when you read when you read the poetry and you start thinking these rocks, rivers, and and all this have a message they're talking to us for, you know, they're trying mm-hmm. to say something. So mm-hmm. this is why uh, I have such a, a in deep uh, appreciation of nature as being a messenger to us, as being a partner with us, and and not a uh, thing to be exploited. All right, please share a poem. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm going to read one that, about one called The Stillness of the, Mo- of the Morning in the book. The stillness of the morning falls in upon itself in deafening vacuum. Not a cricket or a bird is chirping. Silence of the night rubs elbows with the day's gentler stirrings. Dawn is born dreaming in colors entwined with shadows in the tall grass. Freshly bathed and swaddled, glistening with new dew drops on its brow. Hear the quiet sighs of sycamore souls. A friendly breeze tassels their slender white branches, festooned with dying leaves, just changing hues of yellow for chestnut brown. The season turning is upon them. Their marble white trunks stand like tall columns, holding the pale blue roof of the world. The scent of winter hangs in the air. Soon will come the expected transformation before a long sleep. Cold gray wolf pack called winter trails its quarry ruthlessly devouring all that is green and growing. The stoic beaches stand and shiver. Their rusting copper-clad twigs rattle with anticipation. The river birches bring out their gold wrappings as raiding autumn greedily plunders their leafy coffers. Harsh November winds mercilessly maraud. Rugged raiders without conscience, they soon strip bare the willows and the maples, violently casting aside their maroon and gold tunics. 
Shamed in silence, the other trees stand by watching the heartless onslaught. Wooden trunks are callously laid bare to frost and cold winds and pounding rains that always ensue on this, the edge of winter. The trees will ultimately submit to autumn's ruthless ravaging. Hard-hearted winter will tromp its way across the high heavens. The steadfast stars look down upon the weeping trees. With sparkling solace, they shine their bright promises, hanging forever fixed against the hollow, desperate darkness. You will endure, they whisper, with a twinkle in their ever-shining eyes. You will endure. That's the end. All right. Jerry, what is the what is the purpose of that particular piece? What are you attempting to say? I'm I'm a I'm a I'm personifying um nature and the change of the of the season in particular because it's not just a change of the season, it's a richness of, of life that we fail to I guess appreciate. Okay. And I find that writing about it some way like this and personifying nature, uh, giving the seasons a little bit of uh, action, people can understand a little better and see it a little deeper than just, uh, oh, damn, here's winter again, here's summer again, here's here's spring again, you know, and maybe appreciate some of the changes that that we go through, that um, the trees in particular, I find, uh, have a life of their own, and they're probably talking to us pretty loudly right now. What do you think they're saying? They're saying, help. Please plant more of us. Help us. Mm-hmm. Don't cut us all down. Don't burn us all up. Things of that nature, you know. All right. You know, Carol on Park- another note. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Park- <laughs> all right. I was just thinking about what's happening in Canada in terms of the forests and the fires, and they've never seen anything like this before. And when you just said the trees are potentially screaming help, uh, in that regard, it's just a very sad story that these fires were set on purpose. Wow. Amazing. Uh, It's just troubling as hell, but what do you do? Yes. Well, you write about it. You talk about it. Just what you're doing tonight. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't know. It's all right. I'm with you. I'm with you. You talked about yeah. using personification. What are some of the other poetic devices that you like to employ in your work? What do you like to use most often? Probably alliteration and irony, assonance, uh, things of those nature. Pretty simple ones, but they're over, they're underused a lot lately. And it's sort of a tradition that I picked up. Uh, appreciate uh, alliteration and assonance. Uh, Consonants, both of those, all those are, are just interesting to me. Uh, a little what bit makes, of repetition. Okay, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, what makes them interesting? What makes them stand out? Because people don't use them as much anymore. And okay. and I feel I feel good about uh, using them. It's sort of a traditional thing. Uh, I've always appreciated them. Mm-hmm. And they're underused. Mm-hmm. I got a good comment in, uh, from, uh, what was that, uh, Kirkus. Gave me a couple two and a half star review on on a po- on the poetry book, and mm-hmm. they pointed that out. Alliteration seems seems like alliteration. Well, I do. I think it's important that we use some of these poetic devices. And I'm I'm tending to uh, pick out poems that I like. Usually have that in them. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I know that you have a very strong interest, and you've already talked about it in nature. What are some of the other predominant themes that you write about? What else do you write about? Well, in this poem, I do a lot of uh, writing about grief, but in, in this particular book, we talk a lot about grief and, uh, and the aspects of it. And so uh, with, with, with that, you know, you've got uh, a bunch of different, uh, I guess you'd say, what are we saying, uh, the stages of grief that we go mm-hmm. through when we, we grieve. And, there, and we grieve for so many different things, for relationships, for ideas that we, we lost, for, uh, for material and uh, emotional things that we, we lost or misplaced. Uh, old memories. There's so many things you can write stories about. Right. You know, well, I was thinking, I'm looking at the titles, Grief and Her Three Sisters. Now, on one hand, I said, wow, <laughs> Grief and Her Three Sisters. It made me kind of chuckle. But then I thought, well, maybe you, you shouldn't chuckle, Michael, because if she's got three sisters, they're going through something, too, and maybe they have names as well. So I wanted to ask you about the title. And uh, <laughs> and what inspired this particular book? Okay. Well, I read a book. I was going through some stuff back in the in the eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. Living in New Jersey, I was going through some stuff, and I I, I had to read this book called uh, "On Death and Dying," and it was uh, right. written by a lady named Elizabeth Cooper Ross. Yes, I she know of a, her. Yes, you probably know it's a very it's been around, sold millions of copies. Yes. I read it in 89. I think she wrote it in 69. Mm. But that book impressed me. It had five component stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And now when I I was writing, uh, I didn't really come up with that this book's name uh, right away. But I started separating out all the, all the different tiles of poems I had and, and reading the content and realized I had this whole bunch of different things that were related to the grieving process and different parts of the grieving process. And some of it like uh, memory, your, your fondest memories, uh, the vain hopes you have when you're, you're in denial about whatever you're grieving over. And also the false pride we tend to, we tend to want to bargain with God. And, and uh, we, we do a lot of odd things like that when we're grieving that help us get through it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the idea came that maybe all these Grief has these, all these sisters, you know. They're all sisters to grief, parts of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't put five of them in there. I started with four sisters of mm-hmm. grief, and I decided, well, this is way too many. I'm going to just go with three. <laughs> so we, yeah. So we ended up with a little long for all that. So I wrote vain hope, pride, and uh, memory, and fond memory. And those are her three sisters helping grief get through a, a problem of her own, which is one of the uh, the titles in the book, too, near the end of the book, in the back section. Wow. I hit it wow. back so people would read through it and try to find it. Okay. Please share, yeah. please share another piece. Please share another poem. Sure. Well, part of, uh, I think another theme I use a lot is, is, is about uh, – and digging, digging and digging, you know. I do a lot of digging either while you're grieving or you're trying to figure out who you are or what you're doing in life. So I'm going to read you one called Move Your Mountain. Move Your Mountain. This is uh, kind of inspired by a, 
a poetry contest I got in. We were talking about Rummy-inspired poetry. Rummy inspires everybody. Uh, he's, he was so, wow, I wish I'd lived when he was around. But he's something else. But anyway, uh, this is Rummy-inspired. Rummy Move your mountain. Take up the pickaxe and strike at your roots. Keen knowledge may yet grace your sweaty brow and rippling muscle has failed you. The sledgehammer sweetly whispers, grasp me by the neck and swing. Endless hollow thoughts need smashing up while you still know how, harmlessly dismantle the lies. Your sacredly guarded beliefs have grieved you long enough. Wrought iron excuses glow white in truth's forge. Left ashes and cinder tell their awful twisted renditions. They spill their dross and fracture all life's carefully formed molds again. Pitiful sums of nothingness bubble and churn. Amalgams of untruths form distorted castings. Meaningless molten puddles of futility writhe, trapped within your smoking hollow mouth. Quickly poured and left to cool too fast, they have warped, cracked, become useless to all in the end. Sibilant streaks vibrate your guilty skull as a pickaxe clearly and calmly enunciates its ever-present message. Dig like your life depended on it. Dig till you find yourself. Then dig deeper and discover who you really are. That's the end. Oh, you know, that's too powerful to only hear one time. Please share it again. Okay. I'll do it. I hope I can get it out the same atonement. We'll see. I'm going to ask you about that, so <laughs> do your best. This is where that alliteration comes in. Help. Right. Move your mouth. Okay. Take up the pickaxe and strike at your roots. Being knowledge may yet grace your sweaty brow and rippling muscle has failed you. The sledgehammer sweetly whispers, grasp me by the neck and swing. Endless hollow thoughts need smashing up while you still know how. Harmlessly dismantle the lies. Your sacredly guarded beliefs have grieved you long enough. Broad iron excuses glow white hot in truth's forge. Fluffed ash and cinders tell their awful twisted renditions. You, they spill their dots and fracture all life's carefully, mold, carefully formed molds again. Pitiful sums of nothingness bubble and churn. Amalgams of untruth form distorted castings. Meaningless molten puddles of futility writhe, trapped within your smoking hollow mouth. Quickly poured and left too cool too fast, they have warped, cracked, become useless to all in the end. Sibilant streaks vibrate your guilty skull as a pickaxe clearly and calmly enunciates its ever-present message Dig like your life depends on it. Dig till you find yourself, then dig deeper and discover who you really are. The end. Okay. Jerry, like what it, took huh? over? <laughs> I did. What took over inside you when you shared that piece? There was something different. What took over? <laughs> it, I know. It, it's a powerful piece, so it, yes, it, it, it evokes powerful message about what you have to do you can you can play with this all you want in your life you know but you've really got to dig down and find the, the problem what's the problem and then and then what am i really here about you know mm -hmm. and then am i going the right way in life 
you know, you find all these different issues, and, and I've done a pretty good bit of digging in my life. I'm 60. Okay. I'll be 69 in August. All right. I've done a lot of digging, you know. Um, my hands are calloused, you know. I've done a lot of mm-hmm. digging. Uh, I understand this, this thing. But but it's absolutely worth it to dig. And okay. That's the message I want to cross. Absolutely <laughs> worth the dig. <laughs> so it's not a message of anger. Oh, is it? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's just, uh, it's not about anger. It's it's about realization. Mm. Realization mm-hmm. is it, so important. That most of us walk around in a, in a cloud, I think. Okay. I, I'm just, I'm going to temporize here. Most of us walk around in a cloud. We create the cloud. We want to talk out of the cloud like we're God talking to everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. But we're not. Mm-hmm. We got to really dig in and see who we are. Who is really speaking? You know, what's in? What am I really about? And I feel like I know what I'm about. Okay. Uh, All right. That's why I'm talking. About. So you're saying, what I hear you saying is that you're very self-aware. I think I am. So what would be the first step for a poet then to becoming more self-aware? What would you recommend? Well. I think uh, I think doing some inventorying wouldn't hurt us, you know, to, to pull out to pull out the uh, pen and paper and start writing down your your qualities. Okay. Um, because and your weaknesses. And uh, and each weakness you you got a shortcoming. Each shortcoming you got a, a way to correct it. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and then, and then write about them. Don't be afraid to write, write about your weaknesses, although that's probably the hardest thing, you know, a poet can do or anybody yes, can do. Yes, well, I think poets are just like anybody else, but we're more sensitive. than uh, Right. We, we, have, we have a conscience to us, and we don't listen to it. It gets us in trouble, and you know, like everybody else. But, but I think our conscience uh, guides us to speak, put what we learn out there for others. Okay. Um, so that, that's the difference, I think. Right. Please share another piece. I'm I'm fascinated. I want to hear more. So please share no, another one of your works. All right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this. Uh, I'm gonna talk about a little short one here. This is called "Oh Happy Day." This is about <laughs> self awareness. Well, "Oh Happy Day." When I was a little boy, I pretended that things which frightened me would vanish if I simply closed my eyes and wished them away. I matured. I learned to avert my gaze when confronted with disturbing, often embarrassing events. I also came to believe that if I didn't see things or ignore what I saw, then those things would not have real consequences for me later on. Came an adult. My slightly open mind's eye blinked tightly shut. Oh, happy day. With eyes wide open, I had learned the power of outright denial to remove the sting of knowing absolutely anything about the truth. That's the end. Oh, that title. Tell me about the title. Why did you choose that particular title? <laughs> uh, 
I think it was the way uh, I used to feel. I started looking at my childhood in this. It, it all started with, uh, I think, the line with eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. And, and I began to write it, and then I rearranged it a little and realized this is a, a pretty interesting poem, and it rolled me back to my childhood. And mm-hmm. I started thinking about thought about things. I literally started thinking about how I used to deal with everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, first when you're a little kid, you you want to just believe everything's going to vanish like the boogeyman at night. You know, you, the <laughs> yes. lights, lights come on, the boogeyman leaves. You know, you don't have a problem anymore. <laughs> see? So I close my eyes and I don't see it. It's not, it's not there if I don't see it. You know, you're, you're like a little kid. And as you mature, you, you run into various iterations of, of that denial. You really are in denial. And as adults, we, we get that final place in denial where where we just, our mind snaps shut and, well, this is the way everything's going to be. This is the way it is. The way I see it is the way it is, and I'm not going to change, you know. And so mm. so then we run into that, that pitfall, you know. Uh, mm. But denial can be our friend there, you know. Yes. Uh, it removes that, that's the truth. Yes. You know, title, Oh Happy Day, I need to share this. And maybe you know is that in 1969, there was a famous gospel group, the Edwin Hawkins Singers, and they almost reached number one on the charts with a song titled, Oh Happy Day. Something told me you did. <laughs> Something told me you did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> oh, that just, just the title took me to a different place, and I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that song. Yes. <laughs> Might have played a part in the file of the title, too. I'm not sure. But right. but we use it sarcastically here, so you know I'm mm-hmm. using it. You know, it's nothing religious and all this, oh, but yes. it is interesting. I understand. I understand. Now let me ask this question. Sure. Because you know what you know about the world and what you've experienced, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Well, if it hurt me to write it, then I wouldn't become stronger and stronger writing it. That's that's my opinion. I feel mm-hmm. I'm getting stronger and stronger writing poetry. Mm-hmm. I don't feel uh, I don't feel drained when I finish a poem. I feel uh, energized. All right. Uh, All right. And that, that can't be from hurt or harm. Now I might feel some emotional entanglement and some fear. Uh, I've had some fear about publishing some poems. Uh, what people would think? Uh, will my audience hate me? You know, uh, will it? Will it? Will the public accept this idea or not? You know, things like that. I think about it. Everybody probably does. But, well, but essentially, some things have to be said. You know. Well, that brings up. You see, you 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 you've stolen my script because it's another one of my questions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted you to tell me. <laughs> I want you to tell me about a poem that you were proud of writing, but afraid to share for fear of possible misinterpretation. Oh, well, I've got I've got several of those. I've got one mm-hmm. I haven't published, and I would I would read that to you if I needed to read one. But um, 
I've got well, two. Would you like to? Uh, would you like to? Read I whatever you like. Yes. Uh, yes. There's nothing, nothing harmful in it of anybody. But I'm going to read you about, um, this is called about protests. I think, okay. I think a lot of it, or a lot of my poems are, are, are about protests. If you think about it, we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, the destruction of the earth. Well, we better protest that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. If I live here too, you know, I don't want that, that to happen in my watch, you know. But then, mm-hmm. then we have other people out there protesting all the time. And and you just got to – everybody walks by them and, and doesn't think about them. I think about them. I've done it myself. Okay. We had a lot of experience with that in the 70s and the 80s. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, this is called Flags of Conscience. I'm going to read this. And uh, I'm right. going to try to get it in the next book. Hold up your dilapidated protest signs. Though no one can read them with their eyes averted, they may cringe as they tiptoe around you or penitently cross the street, stealing a cautious glance backward after they pass you. Pour out your angst on the cold, heartless sidewalk. Its crystalline core and limestone ears can't hear more than the words you waste on these wretched, apathetic types who shun you hermetically sealed in their indifference, tell them anyway. Remember that it earns them absolutely nothing to stand with you and complain. They can only be affected if they get involved. They have no cause. They don't know what a cause is. The world does not welcome your impudent opinions. Need keeps you moving. A pitiful, determined scarecrow walking on narrow ribbon of concrete. A frigid dawn breaks, and you're still there picketing. Plod your struggle. The wind is frightful. You have not gone away. You cannot be persuaded to leave. With righteousness, you openly protest. Share your frightening, disgusting, delusional, obligatory, and engaging message. Hold your banner a bit higher, please. He who salutes it, those who do not, don't matter anyway. That's it. Wow. They don't matter that, anyway. That me in trouble. Uh, yeah, they don't matter anyway. Mm. They don't. If they don't help you, they don't matter anyway. But we're just still. If you go out protesting, you got to believe. Doesn't matter if they if they believe me, if they join me. If not, I'm showing them something. Maybe that plants a seed. Okay. That that's it. <laughs> you know, you know the world we live in. There's good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the <laughs> indifferent. So much is happening every single nanosecond. So, then, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? Okay. Um. Poet's got to be a truth teller, and okay, he also has he has to be a truth teller. He has to prick consciences. Uh, if if my poem doesn't touch your conscience uh, or or get you to thinking about what what's going on around you, then it's not a, much of a poem. And um, that's why I kind of shy away from a lot of the the real uh, kitty kind of uh, sentimental stuff. I do write a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, because you can't miss that love is the answer, I think, to the the world's problems. If we all had a 
we all shared a little more of it, I think we'd all be better off. But it's not happening. We're better at sharing our problems and our issues. So uh, I think a, a poet's role, poet's role is, a, is a truth teller and a conscience pricker, uh, someone who's who's going to stir the pot a little bit with what they're doing uh, and, and not be afraid of it. I mean, it's hard to not be afraid when you stand there and people are screaming at you, you know. And, mm, it's true. Uh, I've had that happen, uh, not in poetry, but in other things. Mm-hmm. But you've mm-hmm. got to stand your ground. You've got to do it for the truth, the sake of truth. And that's it. Right. Has a poem you've written, Jerry, ever frightened or humbled you? Yeah. Um, I've written one about myself. Let's see. can't quite look my fingers on it. I think I left it out I've written I've written one about myself, um, and it, it's really about uh, being humbled by my lack of or, or less than or, or whatever. Writing about myself and talking about my shortcomings is never easy, uh, but but I have done that mm-hmm. uh, for what I'm worth. That, that would be one I'd say for what I'm worth. Okay. So when you write, who leads, you or the poem? Who takes the lead? Um, on the strongest poems, um, I'd say the poem really pulls you in, and and I think there's some voice that's speaking that writes the poem, and I'm I'm just kind of a I'm just kind of a following along and then later uh, dressing it up. Okay. Great. I think I think the poem really leads on, on the strongest ones and on others, you know, I think it, it all starts with an idea coming from somewhere and jumping through me and then coming out on that page. Is, um, I can write down that one two lines and then set it down and pick it up a week later and boom, it's right there again. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something going on. I don't think it starts with me though. I think it starts somewhere else. Uh, I can't give it. I can't. I can't give it all to me. It's got to be. I like to think God's putting words in my head. That's what I like to think. All right. You know, we're going to take a brief break. But what I'd like you to do while we're on this break, and it's not long, I'd like you to share with me when we return the names of the title of five of the poems in either book. Just five. Random titles of poems that you've written. All right? Okay. And we'll be right back.
We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Jerry Lovelady. Jerry, share with me the titles of five of your poems. Any five. Okay. Such as poetry. I have no children to brag about. If I could buy a rainbow for the love of words, this is the nature of grief. Wow. The reason I ask, what role should a title play in a poem? What should you consider when you're titling a poem? Wow. Well, oh, man. That's a hard question to say uh, finitely about it. I think it comes from different directions. But when I, when I don't usually have a title when I when I begin it. Okay. Uh, I'm because uh, whatever's coming out of it, uh, my head is is dictating that. But when I mm-hmm. get through, I usually find something in the poem that 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 says that, and it gives me that this is what you ought to call it. Uh, I think poetry without a title, I was always uh, a little bit, i tell you what, we read a bunch of poems as kids and in high, college and high school. Um, I was to them, and I always thought, well, why spring a poem on somebody without telling them what, a little bit about it anyway? <laughs> so that's what I'm kind of guessing. <laughs> why spring that up? You might reread this. I don't even know what the heck it is. Poem number 22, so 22 or whatever thinking, come on. So anyway, that's why I really think a poem needs a title. You know, you don't want to just spring stuff. You can come up with it. All right. <laughs> right. As you know, this is a calling show, and we have a caller. I'd oh, like wow. to bring Good. this person on. Yes, <laughs> we have a caller. Okay. Hopefully this person <laughs> would not mind coming on. The code is 216. The first three numbers are 762. You're on the air with Jerry, love lady. Evening. Hello. Good evening. How are you today? I'm quite well. My yourself? question, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. My question is to Jerry, in writing poems about grief, how has your literary work changed or redefined your perspective on grief? Very nice question. That is a great question. Um, Wonderful question. I used to think I, I used to avoid grieving. In fact, I still have a problem with grieving in general because I'll delay my grief. My delay uh, grief when someone passes in particular. My grief isn't always poured out at that at that instant or even a week later. I found myself grieving for people two or three years down the road, and so uh, by writing uh, poetry, I've noticed that at time time frame has, has uh, started to become less, much, much less. Uh, notably, uh, the deaths of, of some people I've known in the last two or three years has made it much easier. Uh, Shorten the time frame, I'd say, on, on grieving for them. But it's also uh, widened my, my aspect of what grief is. You know, we grieve about so many things that we don't even realize, like not this people, but relationships, ideas, uh, missed opportunities. Uh, we, we grieve over so many things. 
So it's really opened my eyes in that respect for, for thinking about grief. But not only that, it lets me uh, believe now that grief is not an enemy of mine. It's it's there to help me get through whatever it is I'm trying to get through. Otherwise, I get stuck in it. You know, I could tell you long stories, but we don't have time. <laughs> All right. Do you have another question, Carla? That was a beautiful question. Do you have another? No, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I appreciate it. Thank you for calling. Help it. All right. Share another poem, Jerry. Okay. I'm going to read you one. It's Such is Poetry. This is a pretty good one. I like doing it. Such is poetry. So much has been said of why poetry is created, life as we knew it, or are yet to know of it, or will never consider knowing, all succinctly described in the shorthand of poetry. In a thing called poetry, a, a few short sentences are written, meant to express what whole chapters might be penned to explain. Incompleteness on purpose, enigmatic by design, cryptically sacred is poetry. Tender hands pen rich histories, almost a religion to some scholars, captured snapshots to be ogled, dissected, fawned over, marveled at and revered, forever festooned on common paper. The bits and pieces of lifetime stored on fragile leaves wait only for the lovers of words to drop in and drag them out again. A book opens, feet prop up and rest. The eye and the intellect discern the winding way to peace, lovingly threaded into the written lines. They use those words to mend their troubled souls. That's it. Wow. Need a second to kind of process. Jerry, what are your thoughts on accessibility? And what I really want to know is how much should one employ in terms of mental energy to solve a poem? Well, I think if you if you love the, the poetry, you're probably a if you love poetry, you're probably going to put out whatever amount of mental energy you 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 feel necessary. But but if the poem's too enigmatic, I find myself, in fact, uh, avoiding reading it. I, I'll uh, okay. I'll reject. I, I kind of reject the author. I go on uh, I go online a lot. Read allpoetry.com, and uh, I'm on there too myself. I'm just not putting a plug in, but I'm letting you know that. If you read poetry pretty much, uh, you'll see your 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 um, your open mindedness uh, increases, um, and over time of reading different authors, uh, being more in tune with it, you'll find yourself uh, maybe uh, understanding some of that cryptology. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, but I think being too cryptic can can interfere with people uh, enjoying. Poetry. It does me. I think you should you should stay on solid ground and use uh, use metaphors that people can uh, can relate to. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it gets pretty deep when you when you get too uh, symbolic with everything. You know, you, it doesn't all have to be an allegory. I mean, 
Every every poem is not an allegory, but some people write like it is. I don't think you should have to right. do that. Right. I did not ask you if you if you come from a literary background and what did you learn about writing growing up from your family? Well, my my mother wrote poetry. Oh, did she? She wouldn't share. She wouldn't share it with us. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. She wrote it. <laughs> And she put it in a shoebox, and she hid it in her closet, and and we, we couldn't read it. We couldn't read it. Oh, yeah, it was weird. Oh, I got I got one time I snuck up in there and I pulled that box down and I started reading her poems. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is great. Wow, mom, I didn't know you could do that, you know. And she was like, oh hush, you know, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> right. Well, that was kind of the end of it. But, but you know, uh, after she passed, uh, she's been gone about five, six years now. Uh, we dragged her stuff back out and um, kind of she lost some of it. In fact, one time she lost a whole folder of her poetry. And uh, on her deathbed, ironically, she, uh, she actually uh, asked me if I had stolen her poems. Mm. And I did, of course, I did not, you know. Right. Because... Like what she wrote has nothing to do anything like what I was I was writing, but but mm-hmm. she she put a value on those poems even in her death. So we uh, we as a, as a kids got together and I'm I'm in a process of putting together a like a little personal collection for all the other. We had six kids in the family, so mm-hmm. put together a collection. But in lieu of that collection, I've been inserting parts of my family in in a few of the poems in this in this book and a previous book. Uh, a few of their names will appear, or situations they're in will appear. Uh, my different family members, and so uh, that's the best. Thing to do. All right. You talked about your wife in a loving way. Would you say that she's your creative muse or your poetic? She's one of. She's one, one of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who are some of the others? Who are some of the others? Well, oh, I had a, uh, I had a, uh, I had a few ex-girlfriends uh, times okay. gone by. <laughs> All right. So All right. Um, they're still on in my mind. Uh, things that we went mm-hmm. through. I never. I've only been married twice. I had one, uh, one ex-wife. I think she's still living in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but this, this wife, I've been with this one 28 years. So wow. we're happy. Wonderful. On. That's fantastic. You know, you, yeah, you get in a stable relationship like that, and good things happen in all mm-hmm. all directions. And so, That's uh, great. That's great. Yeah, I'm happy with that, it. We're, we're still yeah. together. Yeah, well, that puts a great big smile on my face. I like hearing success stories. Thank you. It is. It's mm-hmm. a great story. Yeah, it's a beautiful one. Please share another <laughs> poem, Jerry. Let's see. I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, I'm going to read you one about uh, the way I feel about the world here. It's talking about nature again, but this this mm-hmm. is more along the line of me not having kids. Okay. And uh, I wrote a lot of these poems in a book uh, about sitting in a cabin in the, on the river, on the Natchez River. I go up there a lot, and I enjoy sitting in that cabin out in the morning, in the cool morning air and reading and, uh, and writing. Here's this one. I have no children to brag about. 
I have no children to brag about to others. If I did, I would love them deeply and faithfully. The fertile years for starting a family have ignored me altogether. The trees and the rivers have become my children. As fortune would have it, I adopted them, or maybe they adopted me. Perhaps it was a mutual arrangement. I write long letters about my children to a preoccupied world. I write about the grasses and the trees, how tall they have gotten. I express how much my children's steadfastness, constancy, and devotion pleases me. They will outlive me by centuries. My undistinguished passing will bring them no grief. Their inheritance will be a treasury of words written so deftly written they will turn grown men's hearts to mush. Perhaps I shall succeed at tickling the consciousness of those who would change the wild river's edge or alter the untouched forests and bayous nearby. My children tread the banks of long, spongy bay galls filled with tangled, wild thickets and haunted, shadowy brush harbors. My children are the frolicking autumn leaves turning cartwheels in the frosty wind. Their sandboxes are the spits and bars, the long, looping mounds left abandoned in the sharp river's bends. Briefly, they pause to lick the cool sand piled high and white like vanilla ice cream on the dark chocolate shoreline. Goody woodpeckers laughed aloud and frisky chirp of frolicking squirrels warmly greet me each morning at sunrise. They, too, are my family. Each night, the owls and the crickets and the bullfrogs sing quaint nursery rhymes they have learned just for me. Then my heart sings along and smiles. Sometimes we sing in such harmony that all who hear know we are the same joyous family. They know this place is a welcoming place in which we all belong. That's it. Oh, wow. That was so different from the other one that you shared earlier where I felt that there was anger in the background. What is the relationship, Jerry, between your speaking voice and your written voice? Well, I'm still figuring that out. But, um, okay. The, the speaking voice is more of an acting voice. Okay. Um, All right. Voice. The writing voice um, doesn't usually come out with a lot of anger. If it is, it's it's spewing. You know, I'm not really yes. trying to write a bunch of poetry that's just uh, puking it up. You know, I want to mm-hmm. I want to uh, I want to have a little more meaning than that in it. But once in a mm-hmm. while, I get a little mad about something. I'll write right. about it. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's one of the things that poetry provides us an opportunity to, to do, be able to do is to write about it and get it out of our system so that we don't well, do detrimental right. things to our system. And I know that's why I write. Uh, I agree. You know, Jerry, I think there's some of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you I know, agree. some... <laughs> Man, we could talk all night. All right, let me ask this question. Some poets claim... <laughs> That a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. Are others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form? What is your take on the editing process, my friend? I want to be I want to be clear that I don't edit everything in, in infinitum. You know, it's it's something that uh, when you and you you do it yourself when you write it. You want it to 
be grammatically correct. And in my case, um, I like to use commas. I like to use punctuation, proper uh, proper sentence structure, and, and things like that if I can. Uh, I feel like that's another thing that's going by the wayside, that we're kind of getting away from uh, structured poetry like that. We're, we're getting a little bit too far in a ditch with it, I think. And we're going to lose that as a as a common bond, I think. So I try to uh, I try to edit, not for not for meaning. I think the meaning stays there. No matter what mm-hmm. you edit, I think the meaning will stay there. Uh, it's just cleaning it up and making it presentable in a, in a manner that you appreciate. Um, I, I don't write many poems that have no situation, or, or I like to use. Uh, I like to use, um, I don't know, that that in particular is probably my pet peeve. I want to I want to punctuate practically everything. Capital <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, algorithms shoot me down all the time like that, you know. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say, well, that you got too many words like this. That's a weak words, weak words, weak words, you know. And you look at it, you say you got fifty weak words and twenty or ten that are good, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it hurts the poetry. It doesn't hurt the poetry. But I, you know. <laughs> good, enough for, good enough for me, you know. <laughs> well, let me ask this question. Based on what you know about the world, based, again, what you witnessed, what do you think your work conveys about being human? If I'm, I'm human, and but I'm just a piece of this world. I'm just a a, as a species, I don't think the human race is any more important than the rest of the species on Earth. And I think we, we, we have gotten our, our self-importance um, as, as overblown a little bit. With Human race has done more to tear this place up than, uh, than uh, Earth could ever do. It's just that we think we're the most powerful ones, and we're not. You know, the Earth is much more powerful than we are. And a lot of my poetry talks about that too. It's, it speaks like uh, what's really going on is uh, we're, we're the uh, the folks that think we've inherited the earth and we've kind of torn it up. Mm-hmm. I believe we need to talk like that. We need to speak to our our own uh, self importance, and instead of being uh, overseers, maybe we should become partners with this this nature thing, this way mm-hmm. the world works thing, and we might get now, a lot. Well, I'm wondering, do you participate in readings and uh, open mics and those kinds of things? I do locally here. That's that's where I'm at here. I hadn't really delved off into it much outside of my area here, but I've been I've okay. been doing that. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, I had a good little book sighting down in my hometown here recently. Oh, really? Library. I'm surprised I had 21 uh, writers there. Couldn't believe oh, wow. that little bitty count. Seven thousand people showed up. They showed up. I had a huge crowd uh, of people roll through there. I saw a lot of books and had some good discussions. Oh, very nice. Good connection. <laughs> Always <It's> important. <laughs> I'm enjoying. So, really, good. I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. You know, so often writing can be so emotionally draining as well as a stressful pursuit. So. Have any tips for aspiring writers in terms of how to go about processing self so that you don't 
feel dead inside when you write or after you publish something. Oh, wow. Well, it, it really is, I think, the hardest part is just getting it getting to where you're you're putting it out there, but I think that was harder than actually what happened afterward because for me, it's more energizing to be published. Um, I think don't give up putting your word out there and going, going uh, let people, uh, I would say, get on some website like All Poetry and, and begin to let people give you pointers, critique mm-hmm. uh Being afraid of critiquing is, is hard. Uh, yeah, that, is. that probably hardest thing to accept help. I mm-hmm. think we still all think we, we're going to wing this and it's going to be some kind of spiritual experience that uh, I don't want to touch it. I'm going to just let it flow. But no, you really have to polish your, your art. You have to mm-hmm. polish your, your story. You have to polish yourself and be, mm-hmm. uh, and be put yourself out there. I still have some misgivings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm learning to, that they're unfounded. Like most people like ninety ninety nine percent of the fear, the things I fear never happen anyway. Right. It's good to know. Right. It's good to remember. That. And poets should think that too. All poets aspiring, you got to remember that. It's ninety nine percent of the things that you think are wrong with your poem are not wrong. You just mm-hmm. fine, and they're really the wrong way to write it. I don't think mm-hmm. you write the way you write. <clears throat> That's True. It. You know, we've reached a part of the show that I view as being my personal favorite. I view it as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to say two or three of your poems back-to-back, no interruptions from me, no questions, nothing, just you. Jerry, you're on the stage. Thank you. <clears throat> Grateful to be here, too. All right. I'm going to read you a real short one. You could take this one a lot of different ways. It's called If I Could Buy a Rainbow. If I could buy a rainbow to place in your cold heart and let its love light start to help someone like you and break the bond of hate, I swear it's not too late. If I could buy a rainbow to place in your cold heart, if I could find the courage to reach my hand to you to show that we are two, Who knows what might begin? We might create a pact that puts the world on track. If I could find the courage to reach my hand to you. That's it. The next one is called For the Love of Words. I have no greater purpose and to be a lover of words which suits me well in all they tell of men and things not so mortal or so vain. Whatever one may say aloud is not nearly as eternal as a world built by strong words laid in a line, winding on, back to top one another, hopscotching across a leaf of remnant cellulose scrap or thickly stuffed into a dusty, leather-bound tone. All are the same, both mundane and extraordinary. Even these lines are worldly particles of the whole which changes its meaning at every pen stroke. In each simple word, there is a life, timeless and immortal, meaningless and ignored, hallowed or derided. 
When two when new words are laid down, there too am I again mastering the pen, which wants to write its head. Reined in for a time, it collects the words. What needs to be said, cemented to an eager page, its greater purpose realized at last. That's it. Right. I have time to get a third. Okay, yes, go ahead. please. <laughs> I was hoping you'd do another sure. one. <laughs> yes, I got please. one more. All right. Okay. This is the nature of grief. Talk about grief now. Mm-hmm. Or my grief. Grief is a time-wrenching line in the sand I draw with a blood-soaked finger, unsure of myself, weary of the crusading internal battles while cohorts rage year in and year out. Struggles and loss are surreptitiously conjured. Unresolved conflicts persist. Unkept promises stubbornly refuse to give way to blessed thoughtlessness. Unwieldy solutions burrow out from under my safely stowed conscience to intentionally stagnate me more than to offer any hope. Grief suppresses the recognition of its own image cast in a tarnished mirror and hastily traded for multiple short-lived scenarios of peace. Grief demands my immediate small sacrifices. First to go are my personal freedoms, abandoned for the greater good, followed by abdication of most well-established and acceptable social standards for the same reasons. Deliberate oppression of joy ensues. All this must happen so others may enjoy their hollow peace at my expense. For the sake of good hygiene, I will burn the bodies of the fallen in the town square of my reputation. This is the nature of grief. To ever wear a smile where my bra- when my brain is rudely dissected by my ruthless opponents. As my peace of mind angrily tromps away, perennial losers will bankrupt my serenity, label me a cowardly, traitor, misanthropic heretic, and build a new scaffold in my honor. These are the times when I stealthily slip off just before my remorseless conscience comes with armed guards looking to drag me away to be re-educated again. That's it. Wow. Jerry, how has writing poetry you as a thinker? Oh, man. Wow. I, that's, that's a great question. It, it is amazing to me uh, what one thing leads to another you know you mm-hmm. and you got to research poetry you got to research i, I mm-hmm. think i've done more research on, on not just words but things i want to put in a poem that mm-hmm. have opened up my, my perspective as a writer uh things i would never have thought to, to even look up think about write about research is important though for, for mm-hmm. my poems anyway because okay. I think it lends credence to to what you're writing. It, it actually has a, a more concrete feel to it with with some of the the things. You know, some of my poems have French words in them, or Spanish words in them, or <laughs> Latin words in them. You know, yes, German words. I think all those things are neat. To, I, I appreciate uh, people like T. S. Eliot and mm-hmm. uh, uh, C. S. Lewis uh, wrote, wrote, writes a lot of prose like that. He puts mm-hmm. all the time throwing. Look, I took four years of Latin. I forgot most of it. 
but I kind of see where he's headed, you know. <laughs> things, things like that. You, know? um, you just remember that, how, and the impact that those words have is so important. I, I, I was listening to one of your guests on an earlier show was talking mm-hmm. about uh, great impact. That guy is some hell of a hell, heck of a writing style, doesn't he? But anyway, mm-hmm. that's all. All right. So how would you classify, based on what you know, your ability to write poetry? Is it a creative gift or a creative art? Wow. Um, I think it's a gift. It's grace. It's All it's right. given to it. I don't think it's it's artistic in its manner, and it, and it, it can be inspired by much much art. But I think poetry inspires art just as much as art inspires poetry, mm-hmm. and particular music, because without words for that music, you got a symphony, and very few people can appreciate symphony music. Uh, you have to listen a whole lot of it to understand it. I don't. But, boy, I understand uh, when when a song has good words in it. Mm-hmm. I remember those words. I remember the tune based on that, those words. And so I think it, it makes things memorable, and that's that's my answer, I think. It, uh, All right. It makes things memorable. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? I didn't know it, but I was. I believe I was. I didn't know it at the time. What surprises you? Little, you little, yes, please. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. <laughs> talk, give you a little, talk to me. When I was in high school and I started reading uh, reading uh, different authors in high school, was they mm-hmm. start you out in American literature and they run you into world, world literature. And uh, I started reading a little British literature and I said, you know, these guys have been here since the 1500s. And, I mean, they have written stuff, like, you know, since the 1500s. And I would love to be like, you know what, I'm going to, one day I had this little fantasy. One day I'm going to be Poet Laureate of America. We didn't even have Poet Laureate until 1987. <laughs> there wasn't a Poet Laureate until 1987. It's Richard Wilbur, first American Poet Laureate. <laughs> that's what I thought. And I can't be a laureate anyway because have a degree. I don't have a doctorate. And I don't have a degree. So I'll never be a poet laureate. Hey, I might you be never a know. poet laureate, but I'm not a laureate. I, can't, I can only be happy. Hey. Well, <laughs> I don't believe it's about about, about the degrees. I, in terms of degrees, I'm always like, don't believe the hype. You're still here first. <laughs> and you're prone to frailty just like any other person. So like, what surprises you most about being a poet? That's that is so hard. Um, uh, it's marvelous that uh, people, when you when you talk about poetry to people you mm-hmm. meet or people you even know or you don't know, whether they love poetry or they don't, they respect you. You have such a respect factor when you're you're a published poet or whether you're not. But when right. you can write poetry you have such a respect factor that that you earn automatically whether people read it or not or they like it or not or whether they know you're not uh and and i think that it comes from the fact because they say it they say i can't do that 
and I, I think that's the truism of it that we respect other people who can't do what we who who can do what we can't do. Mm-hmm. And there's such a such a love from those that uh, appreciate it because they tell you, well, if you, if you know them, they tell you, well, I didn't know you could do that. And, and or they or they'll always uh, kind of talk to you. They want to they want to be around you. Mm-hmm. I think it's been a, a real interesting. That that all those years when I, I hadn't thought that I would I would ever publish a book or get involved in it that that mm-hmm. I never figured that that this would come the way it has with so much respect and love mm. I just I find that amazing. You know, writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to the audience. Others write because staying silent. Is not an option. Jerry, why do you write, my friend? Well, well, <clears throat> I like I like writing for starters. I like I like to uh explore ideas and uh, put them together. Mm-hmm. And uh and it's a tree is probably the only thing I've ever done half decently, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or that's a strong uh, statement. Great. That's a very strong statement. <laughs> I mean, Consider I've lived a long I've, life. I've, I've, I've drawn, painted. I mean, you know, I've done that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a great craftsman at anything or, or an artist at anything else. Uh, I've tried short story writing. I am going to go back to short stories eventually. Okay. But, uh, right now, poetry has has been my most successful thing that I do creatively, and a creative oh, wow. uh, part of me has been suppressed all my life. I just, you know, uh, I probably would have been a good sculptor, but my mom uh, didn't approve of me uh, doing that. And they didn't, they didn't allow me to take uh, art in high school. I was mm-hmm. prepping for a kind of uh, academic degree they wanted me to have, to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. You got to be a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. I fell mm-hmm. out the first time I saw blood on my sister's head. You know, I mean, right. the board fell out of a tree. I had to take her to the doctor. Man, I saw mm-hmm. those stitches go in, I fell out. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So, you know, I understand. Mm-hmm. I just, this is a, the, the one talent that I, I have that I know about mm-hmm. that works so far. And mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that's why uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting that out of it. Uh, all right. I'm not getting all praise and recognition, but I do enjoy that too. Don't get me wrong. That's all right. But, but – Something has to be said. You got to say it. Well, let me ask you this: We're almost at the end of our poetic journey, but can you share one more <laughs> before we go? Just one more. Yeah. Just one more. All right. I want to give you my refrigerator. I've got one here. I love it to read. It's one of my favorites. Okay. It's called my two-dimensional refrigerator universe. <clears throat> My two-dimensional refrigerator universe. Living in the dead viper elbow room on my two-dimensional refrigerator universe. Spanning six decades of love and sorrow, their faces and bodies are warped and compressed into two-dimensional form by time and memories. Their still frame eyes laugh, posed corny smiles glow. Ever elated and grouped alongside warmer images of happy people hugging, holding, supporting a pleasant past. 
both knowns and anonymous, share space in sepia and gray splendor. Sprung from snapshots taken in a black and white world, now encased in crinkled paper-bordered edges. Aimless frames are filled with frozen grins, gleaming white teeth, perfected hairdos. Loving great aunts and uncles, cousins and old friends are captured securely by magnets which vertically pin them onto the gleaming white doors of the freezer compartment. They hang lovingly suspended in better times, clutched hard to other old memories, which will last longer long after we are wasted dust when the junk man takes our universe away. Infant to toddler to teen to adult, relatives ripen from image to flattened image. Intimate decades are projected, truncated, condensed, lovingly captured in the act of celebrating their vibrantly lived lives. The Poe's old homestead recounts its own snow-covered universe within a universe as pale white winter days are reconstituted on the icebox. It's autumn, but the snow never melted. Over a thick blanketed front yard Malu, the immortal snowman still proudly reigns. Fur boughs hang evergreen and fresh on a weathered screen door. Ribbons flutter suspended in the absent breeze. Red satin streamers vainly attempt to wave. Presents fill all the spaces beneath the fresh cut tree hung with strings of popcorn and real candy canes. Grandmother in her housecoat and curlers wears a knowing smile. Crawling puppies and tots scramble, gleefully unaware the camera's roving eye has snared them, marooned them into a short-lived immortality stuck to the refrigerator doors. Excitement seems to seep through the cracks in space and time as the images pass one by one from sentimental eyes across the great expanses into the vacuum of our melancholic hearts. Onward go those memories to other broad universes we keep hidden away inside us, always searching for another place to light and make us smile again. That's it. Where can we purchase other worlds, in other words, and grief and her three sisters? Where can they be purchased, these books? Well, you can you can go to my website and buy them there. Of course, you got all the other outlets like Barnes and Noble and Amazon. But you could go to my website and see a little bit more about the poetry books as well. Jerry J E R R Y Love Lady L O V E L A D Y Poetry P O E T R Y dot com, and and that's a good place to buy. All right. And there you can purchase or read about them. Thanks. Where do you go from here? What's next creatively, Jerry Lovelady? What's next creatively? Two ways. I've got two books started. I've got one of them is a political sort of thing going on. It's a whole lot of politics in that one, and I'm kind of a little bit leery about putting it out there yet, but I'm going mm-hmm. to see what happens. The mm-hmm. second one is more of a, a deep introspection, uh, kind of like this book, but not along the line of grief. We're We're talking about just a lot of deep introspection and feelings. Okay. And so uh, I'm not going to be through with that one until probably uh, November, December. Uh, so well, I'll, I'll be the... Continue. Hmm? <laughs> right. 
You know, there's so much more I'd like to talk with you about. So that's why I'd like you to come back. Oh, great. And, uh, for part two. Love to. <laughs> for part two. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing that I, you write exceptionally well, that's one. But the other thing that kept coming to mind is that I really feel like your core is intact. You may not believe that it is sometimes, but that's how it comes across. That's interesting. I don't think anybody's ever told me that your core is intact. That's interesting. Uh, I hope you're. I, I feel. I feel comfortable. I feel pretty comfortable. Yeah. You make me feel comfortable, and I think that's part of it too. Uh, All right. By your, right. By well, the way you handle the thing. So, thank you yeah. so much. It's been a pleasure. Being yes, on. I, I've really enjoyed my Jerry. <laughs> we finally Good. pulled it together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I apologize for misspelling your name. <laughs> How I did right <laughs> out to a hundred and fifty thousand people. I will never. <laughs> Oh. And you didn't pick it up. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I missed it either, but somebody got it. You're good. I appreciate it. Yes. Well, like I said again, I, I'm glad that you're here with me, and uh, I want you to come back, and we can talk further about that as we continue this journey together. All right? You just let me know when, and I'll be there. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. All right, everyone. This is a great program, and as I with you every time we're together. Let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Good night, Jerry. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.